Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life, their journey throughout the world of martial arts and, and other stuff they're involved in. My guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Jungle Plus, now one of the fastest growing international streaming media platforms in the ad-supported space. Prior to that, he served as chief content officer of Crunchyroll, launching Second TV and KDrama.com, the company's first international live-action OTT platform. He's also a former five-time world karate champion and black belt Hall of Fame inductee. His business career started in martial arts with teaching over 20,000 students, promoting over 1,000 to black belt. He spent 14 years as a coaching specialist for the San Francisco 49ers, even earning a Super Bowl ring for the 1994 season. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. George Chung. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great. Thank you, Brian, for having me on your show. Oh, I appreciate appreciate your time, as always. And what, what I'd like to do is jump right into it. And with all my guests, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to know where that first spark was, that first interest that led to your journey in the world of martial arts. That's a great question. I actually started when I was 12 years old. Okay. Um, I was living in San Jose, California at the time, and a martial arts Taekwondo school opened up near my home. And I knew enough about Taekwondo to know that it was a Korean martial arts uh, a martial arts style. Uh, I'm actually half Korean and okay. half Japanese. And, uh, you know, growing up, you know, in San Jose, I grew up in, in a time that there were not a lot of Asian people in my neighborhood. I think I, there was a total of two or three Asian people at my school growing up, you know, out of, out of a school of, you know, several hundred. Mm -hmm. And I always had this desire to learn more about my culture. And growing up, having that void of, of not really knowing, you know, where your where your family is from, and primarily because uh, both of both of my parents raised us uh, until the, that time, uh, you know, in a very American style way. My mother was a you know second generation uh, Japanese and you know grew up so grew up speaking English. Obviously, my father Korean had tremendous pride of being you know becoming an American citizen and really wanted his children to grow up with this all-American idea, primarily because of where he came from. He came from North Korea and knew that he was never going back or did not want to go back. So it was all eyes forward in this new land of America. And so he really wanted his kids you know, to grow up to become American. But growing up, I obviously knew that you know I was a little bit different because of other kids didn't look like me. And so learning martial arts in the beginning was truly about understanding more about my culture. And obviously at the time, martial arts was, was, was pretty cool to learn. So I started Taekwondo with an instructor uh, named Ernie Reyes, who oh. obviously at this time is very, very famous today. Yes. But at the time, you know, Ernie was, you know, 28 years old, uh, working as an assistant instructor for a school called Choi's Taekwondo owned by Dan Choi. He, uh, he had just moved from Salinas, California after graduating from college. 
He was a star athlete, you know, growing up, but had this tremendous love and passion for martial arts. So I probably could not have started with the great, you know, you know, you know, even if it was by design, you know, training under one of the greatest uh, masters in the world, um, being my first instructor and eventually becoming my mentor in the martial arts. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I've, I've had the honor of meeting him one time. I met him and Ernie Jr. at the Diamond Nationals. And I think it was 1991 or 1992, they were there promoting the movie Surf Ninjas. And so I got to meet them and get pictures and autographs and just amazing, amazing people. So once you got into it, what made you want to stick with it? What kind of kept you involved and kept your interest? When I first started martial arts, I was not very good at it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that I was I had average coordination. You know, I, I played some sports. Mostly it was, you know, Little League Baseball. Uh, but I would not be what you consider an athlete, you know. Martial arts training was something that, you know, I had to work hard at. And in the beginning, it was pure recreation, joy, fun. I wouldn't even call it a passion yet. It really wasn't a passion yet. But I loved it because it was something that I could do that brought me great happiness. Uh, Learning martial arts at a time when martial arts were still kind of what we would consider in this old school fashion. So at the time, I was 12 years old and I didn't want to take the children's class because most of the kids in the class were eight, nine, and 10 years old. They were a little too young. And the adult class, all of the adults were 18 and over. But that was the class that I really desired to, to train in. So from the beginning, I, I took adult classes from day one. And it, it was a great lesson because it, you can imagine at the time in the 70s, there was, there was no uh, holding back of, 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 <laughs> of pain and punishment you know, you, you train like everybody else. And it, t- today you would call it dangerous and somewhat irresponsible, <laughs> yep. but back then it was just the way that we did it. Yeah. I know I've had so many instructors tell me that if they, if they taught like the way that their instructor did in the, in the seventies and early eighties, they'd probably be in jail right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but it was, it was great learning to train that way because I had the opportunity at the school at the time to train with not only great passionate instructors, but also it taught me so much about the world because Ernie was the was really the head instructor at the school because Master Choi really, he was the grand master, but he really didn't teach. Okay. Uh, Ernie taught all, most of the classes, but we had the opportunity, you know, on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights, we'd have different instructors. And so it was really interesting. I had three instructors that were very, very different. I had one instructor named Hugh Van Dong, who's Vietnamese, but he studied Bondo, which is a Burmese martial arts, and trained in the 60s in this very old school kickboxing style. And it was, I mean, it was brutal training. And so his approach in teaching us was in this very brutal old style, you know, hit your shins with a piece of wood type of training. You know, it was pre-Makiwara board or or cool sentry equipment wave masters, you know, we would just train to to condition shins and elbows and and knuckles. And then we had an instructor whose name was Reza, who was, he literally looked like, imagine a modern day version of Fabio, you know, with this, you know, long hair. He, you know, at the time I thought he was 10 feet tall, but he was probably, you know, six feet tall, muscular. Reza was Iranian and was just, just masterful in his moves. And then we had other instructors in the class, but to have instructors from different parts of the world. And, you know, I'm a 12 year old kid learning from, you know, an instructor from Vietnam, an instructor from Iran, you know, Ernie Reyes. And it really gave me an appreciation of learning 
from people with such diverse backgrounds, such diverse backgrounds, all teaching the same art with a different approach. And I really started to appreciate and start to fall in love with the training because the training became like an adventure. It wasn't just going to class to sweat. It was an adventure, hearing the stories and training. And it's almost like when you watch these old school Kung Fu movies, when they would make their students go through these crazy drills, these drills were just a part of the way that we trained. And again, you know, for a 12 year old, 13 year old kid, it was something like you would only read in books. And it was something that, that it was so memorable for me that I think that began um, this love that I had for martial arts. And it wasn't about, you know, the, the pain and the crazy training. It was about doing something that really made you feel good about yourself and started to bring confidence. And really, uh, that's what started to uh, light the fire of, of my of my passion toward martial arts. Wow. And I love how you talk about that with the multiple instructors and in different styles, because, you know, I hear so many stories about the old school instructors where they were so restrictive on only our style, only our school and and kind of shunned away from sharing things. And you had a few of the other ones who who were against that and they liked sharing ideas and, and stuff. So it's really cool that you ended up in that school where they were able to do that and were a little more open. And I credit that to Ernie Reyes because mm -hmm. I've always said this, you know, throughout my life, because, you know, I met Ernie Reyes in 1974. So, you know, you can do the math, right? It's a long time. Mm -hmm. But I've always said this. Ernie Reyes could have been a basketball coach, a football coach. He chose martial arts. But whatever he would have applied his teaching method and coaching style to, and I, I use this term coaching, not to take any respect away from a martial arts mastery of, of, of their art, but Ernie knew how to coach and he knew how to bring the best out of young talent. And he really, if you think about it today, you know, the, the influence that he's had, you know, going on 50 years of teaching, um, the influence that he's had in martial arts from tournament champions to demonstrations, to movies, to media, it's amazing. And, you know, it all started in this little school in San Jose, California. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, he's like I said, such an amazing impact. And it's just, like I said, I only got to meet him. I never actually got to train with him. So I can't imagine that, but I'm wondering what, so what level did the uh, competition start for you? Cause I know that was a big part of you, you, you know, national champion numerous times. So when, uh, what belt level and kind of what was your go-to for competition? You know, I, I first started competing in tournaments when I was 13 years old, you know, I think it was a green belt. And I went to my first karate tournament. It was, I think it was like 1975. And I had to fight in this division at the time it was 12, it was called, it was just called boys 12 to 15. <laughs> and it was, and it was intermediate green to black belt. Right. <laughs> wow. And I, and I remember, you know, and again, I wasn't that good. I really wasn't that good, but I, I kind of eked my way into the semifinals and, you know, I won my first couple of matches. And then they said, hey, you're fighting in the semifinals. It's just going to be you and, and two other guys. Well, it's me, you know, 12 years old. I'm not that big, you know. And then there were two other kids. And there's a kid that was 15, but he was a big 15-year-old, <laughs> right? And another kid who was a black belt who was just amazing. And I didn't have a chance. I didn't have a chance. But what I remember coming away from that tournament was fear. And I was actually afraid, afraid of being hurt, afraid of, I wouldn't even say afraid of being embarrassed. There was just an actual fear that these kids were just, just going to pound me. Right. Mm -hmm. And I did not like 
that feeling whatsoever. I did not like that feeling. It wasn't shameful. It was not because, again, you know, I was a pretty aware kid. You know, it's like these kids are older than me. They're obviously trained longer than me. They're better than me. But, you know, here I am and this is what I have to do. Right. right. And so I think part of that began to sink in that I didn't like what that feeling felt like. Right. And I did not want to be afraid. I did not want that feeling to ever happen to me again. And again, I, I continued my training. And around the time that I got my black belt, I had been very involved as a kid in musical theater. So I always had a background in, in theater and that desire to be on the stage and, and, and to perform on the stage. I've done that, you know, probably from the time I was eight years old, all the way through the, you know, my teenage years. I, I, I had done that and I really loved being in theater. And I remember when um, we started looking at forms, we first started looking at a book that had just came out called Dynamic Kicks from a guy by the name of Chong Lee. Mm -hmm. And we just went through that book, like, you know, page by page, wanting to be like Chong Lee doing all these kicks. This is pre-tricking and pre all of that, right? right? We just, just paper. And we saw that and we, we said, you know, we want to be just like Chong Lee. And he was living in Los Angeles. And there was, uh, there was a, a tournament that was happening. And, and again, this is probably 1977. I just got my black belt. And uh, there, was a, there was a tournament that was happening in Los Angeles called the Hollywood Action Contest. And what they were doing, they were, you know, you know people would come out and do demonstrations. And what I did was I, uh, I put together a musical form, the first of, you know, the first of many, mm -hmm. uh, to the theme of Rocky. But it had different elements. It had forms and it had breaking. And it was like, a, it would think of it like a one-man band demo is wow. what it was. Okay. You know, and, and here I am, I'm, I'm 15 years old at the time. I don't think I was even 16. And I competed in this tournament. And at this event, it was like, this was pre-demo teams. It was just masters going out with their students. And it was, if you can imagine this, He Il Cho, Jun Chong. Wow. Uh, it was all these masters from their studios competing in, a, in what was then a demo contest, right? A, then a demo contest. And I had you know, the blessing of my, of my instructor, Ernie Reyes, when I would put together this form. And it was like, there was not a chance in hell that you know, I wasn't going to come out with anything because, you know, like I said, I was a 15, 16 year old kid. But the judges weren't karate instructors, the judges were celebrities. And the judges at the time was. <laughs> Barbie Benton, who was a Playboy playmate, yep. and James Kahn, wow. who was a black belt in karate, who's you know who became a big movie star, mm -hmm. still is alive today, and a karate master named Tak Kubota, wow. and and they were the judges, and so we all did our stuff, but I came out with music, right? I did a little bit of gymnastics, you know, cartwheels and aerials and karate and board breaking, and but because I had my background in musical theater. I knew that everything had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, a finale. It had to have an actual ending, mm -hmm. where back then martial arts was like break, and then you, you, know, you walk off. And it wasn't really a put-together performance. So I had a put-together performance, and lo and behold, I won the event. Wow. That's awesome. And it, it was like... It was like, here are your heroes. He yelled show and Jude Chow, they're looking... What the hell just happened? <laughs> why are why are we even here now? It's like you know, when I think back of it, 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 it was kind of strange and bizarre. It was the first uh, development of, of of adding showmanship and theatrics into martial arts, and that 
really became uh, one of one of my first starts in 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 seeing that that I could win something. Because prior to that, I had done some tournaments and and, and I had done forums, but I never I never really won you know mm-hmm. anything big. So that took us to a point where suddenly Master Reyes now said, you know, we're, we're onto something pretty cool. And he loved, he loved drill team, mm-hmm. drill team, you know, marching bands, the precision units. And he began putting together routines with martial arts, band and precision movements. And then I would throw in this theatrical flair. And by the way, always had to add in music. <laughs> And it was whatever the the flavor of the month was from, and don't forget, we're talking the 70s, yeah. so it was disco. And we would put together these things, and this is prior to what they have today as demos. Mm-hmm. And then we would put together these these skits where we would actually do like almost theatrical style skits done with music, done with martial arts. And it was kind of unheard of at, at, at the time because, again, we're talking 1977, 1978 period uh and it started to blossom into into what we know today as the west coast demo team right those were some of the early hints that we were on to something kind of cool that's i mean that's just cool to be a part of the beginning of that whole thing i mean talk about just (laughs) being at the forefront and and, you know having the having the knowledge just to do that i mean that's so cool that you were got to you know you know brian for this team it was not only having you know an opportunity to train but something more important and i can really appreciate this today was Master Reyes encouraged us to become creative. He encouraged us to try new things. He encouraged us to grow. I can recall him bringing in Filipino stick fighting instructors and boxing coaches just to widen our understanding of martial arts, you know, kind of in the spirit of Bruce Lee, of being able to expand your palate, you know, that one art is not the only way. Right. And it had a tremendous effect on us as martial artists, but also in, in the development of that team. Okay. And how long did you stay with Master Reyes? And then did you branch out to end other yeah. styles? So we had put together the team, you know, in, in, in the seventies and we started touring as the West coast demo team. And I think it was, it started like 1978 okay. and I was with the team all the way into the early 1980s. Uh, I began competing on the national circuit in 1979. I was still in high school mm-hmm. and I started competing and again, taking, you know, the, you know, I was still doing the demos and then the forms itself started to advance into much more what we call creative forms and, you know, rivalries began and, you know, you know, you know, the, the East West, East coast, West coast, John Chung <laughs> yeah. rivalry. And, and it really uh, allowed me to start to travel uh, nationally and, Around that time is when I met Cynthia Rothrock. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, like I said, I was still a very young man. And Cynthia and I uh, became tr- friends and training partners. And I encouraged her to, to move to the West Coast, which she did to continue her training. And around that time in the, in the early 80s, Cynthia and I decided that we'd open up a school together. And at the time, we departed from our relationship, you know, with the West Coast organization and unfortunately, for many, many years, I was uh, we we were estranged from each other, you know. Oh, and okay. part of that is just you got to remember. Part of that is you're young, yeah. and it's emotional, and right. you know, leaving your your teacher. Today, today, I'm so proud to say that I love Grandmaster Reyes like a father. I will always treat him, you know, with that respect that he deserves. 
as my master, as my mentor, literally as a second father to me. But in those earlier years, it was tough because, you know, we, we were separated. Cynthia and I had our own school kind of doing our own thing to one town away. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a little bit of crosstown rivalry, but it was, it was a part of growing up, so to speak. So I left that organization in, in like 1982, 1983 okay. to, you know, to move on to my, to my career in teaching. And that's when that began. All right. So what made you want to teach? Uh, what kind of drew you to the teaching aspect of martial arts? <laughs> I never wanted to teach. <laughs> I've, never had, wanted to. I've had so many guests give that answer. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in a way that I don't, not because I don't like to teach. Right. And, and that's not the reason. I never had a, my sight set from a career path of being a martial arts instructor. I thought I was going to be a radio DJ or, or, <laughs> or a news correspondent or work in media. Mm-hmm. And if, if you had asked me, you know, back in, you know, when I was a kid growing up, what do you want to be? I, you know, I wanted to be an AM DJ on the radio. That's what I wanted to be. Nice. Right? Wolfman. And, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it was, it's funny because I still to this day, I, I have a slight list. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so S's and growing up, you know, I had to have a little bit of speech therapy because S's and SH's and the name, you know, and my name, George Chung, there's a lot of sound which mm-hmm. which I, I struggled with so growing up i gave myself a pseudo name that would not have to have any s's and h's and it was randy randell <laughs> randy <laughs> so, randell nice so it was like 90.5 a.m radio randy randell on the dial it's the eagles and coming up next it's steely dan in asia it's that's five awesome. past the hour <laughs> so so that's that was kind of my, my my career path i thought i would i would do but I always tell people the success of my martial arts school, I always say was because I probably had a better personality than the karate instructors down the street. <laughs> so I was I was a little bit kinder, nicer, and more fun to be around. I also incorporated a lot of music. And, and today, what is, what is the norm back then was very non-traditional. Mm-hmm. I never wanted my instructors to even call me master. It wasn't until many years later on when, when I really had multiple schools that the whole master thing even came in but for years i just wanted to be george and to this day i still uh, much more comfortable when people address me in martial arts as george um but at at the time it it was we were were just having a good time and having a lot of fun and i was successful at it Mm -hmm. and it kept me in that game and it what it did was it, it provided a great living a lot of fun but I always knew that there was something that was missing. I just didn't know what it was okay. back then. So how long did you teach and how long did you run schools? So I taught from like the early 1980s, you know, all the way until the late 1990s. Two things changed my, my career path was in the late 80s, I, want, I, I thought I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. thought I wanted to be an actor, you know, like a lot of you know, karate kids at the time. At that time... Cynthia had already started to take off as an actress, you know, in her career. She was having this amazing career. I too wanted to be an actor, but, you know, I look back at the skill level that I had. I would probably have been a good stage actor, but just did not have the chops to be a movie actor. But, you know, every, every person with a black belt back then wanted to be Bruce Lee. Right. So I made a few low budget movies back then. I like to say that when people look at my movies and they say, man, were those B movies that you made back then? I say, no, my movies were more like L. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's great. And, and, but, but it taught me how to make movies and I made four movies, but it, it taught me how to make a movie, 
how to direct a movie, how to edit the movie. And ultimately, the greatest skill it taught me was how to sell a movie. Because my movies were so bad, I couldn't get a distributor. Okay. And so I ended up having to distribute the movies myself. So going back you know, to, to, to the late 80s, I was actually part-time in the karate business and part-time going to film festivals trying to sell these terrible movies that I made. Okay. And it, I always kind of had this you know, dream that I wanted to be an actor, but by the, you know, by the, by the early 1990s, that was kind of over. And I had, a, I had one little school in Los Gatos, California, and I have a friend of mine who came to me who was a, who was a, who was a banker. Who, when I say banker, he, worked, he actually worked at a bank you know, in the economics, mm -hmm. in the finance division doing economic forecasts. But he was a martial artist by the name of Anthony Chan, who's a wushu master. And Anthony came to me and said, look, I know how to run a business, but you know how to make it fun. Let's, why, don't we, why don't we team up and do this together? And Anthony at the time, were, we were kind of rivals coming up you know, in, in martial arts competition, but we had tremendous respect for each other. And Anthony Chan and I took on the one little martial arts school that we had in Los Gatos, California in 1989, and we turned that into 11 dojos by the mid-1990s wow. uh, with thousands of students around the Bay Area and in Southern Nevada. And around that same period, I had a student that I was training in martial arts by the name of Ronnie Lott, who was a very, at the time was a, was a, was an up and coming football player for mm -hmm. the San Francisco 49ers. I was just his martial arts instructor and he started uh, bringing in other, other, uh, other players to train. And I actually remember, it was actually, believe it or not, it was Cynthia Rothrock that actually told me this. Mm -hmm. And she may not even remember this, but Cynthia used to do a lot of personal training. And I remember when she would train her students, this was like pre-aerobics and pre-cardio you know, cardio fitness. She would kill her students and they would just be dying at the end of the workout. And she told me, she goes, look, you got to kill these guys. Not not physically kill them, but you, know, you got to make them walk out like, you know, this is the hardest thing that they've ever done. You got to challenge them, right? Mm -hmm. And you know how to make it fun and challenging and mentally challenging, but you got to really do that. And I went from being, you know, an instructor that, you know, that always taught a great class to someone that knew how to just turn up the heat, really turn up the heat and, and created a, a very, very intense workout that incorporated a lot of drills. But what, what I had to do was to keep their interest because they weren't karate people. Rather than teaching the same thing every day, I taught a completely different lesson every single day Wow! to keep them motivated and challenged. And around that time in the 1990s, there was a player by the name of Charles Haley, who was a, a rookie at the time. This is a guy that's gone on, if you were a football fan, Charles Haley went on to win, go into the Hall of Fame and win five Super Bowls. At the time was just, you know, just young, angry, you know, hard to get along with football player who was enamored by Ronnie, loved Ronnie, but was very difficult for coaches to work with. So in the offseason, Ronnie brought him to me and said, look, George really helped me, martial arts, you know, and, and I want you to train with us. And I started training with Charles. And one day he said to me, he goes, you know, really like, you know, what you're doing, but, and this is what I love about these guys, because it, unlike martial arts day, where you would never say anything about your instructor mm -hmm. doing something wrong. He said, man, I, you know, I think it's really cool what you do and everything, but how's this going to help me? Really? How's this going to help me? And then I and then I would give the answer that everyone, well, Charles, you have to think about how you can cross over. And he was like, I don't got time for that to figure that shit out. Literally, that's what he said. I don't have time mm -hmm. to figure this shit out. You figure it out. So I literally said to him, Charles, what is it that you do? Because I'm a pass rusher. I said, okay, Charles, I'm a martial arts guy. I have no idea what a pass rusher is. <laughs> so he said, let's go and watch film. 
And I began that journey in 1989, 1991, and started to devour football, football tape and film and everything I could. And I looked at it like a fight. And what I realized was in football at the time, watching those defensive linemen when they go up against an offensive lineman, it's hand-to-hand combat before you go on and and, and sack the quarterback. And I said, okay, I'm going to take these moves. I'm going to break down these moves, but I'm going to break down the moves as if it's a fight. So instead of a jab, you have a slap. And instead of a rip, uppercut, you have a rip. And then there's, and we would have all these things. And I began training the football moves only for the football moves. So we would have a basic warm-up, And then it was like, think of it like football karate, only for football. And we started seeing tremendous results. And suddenly I started getting more and more top level athletes coming to me, Ronnie Lott, Dwight Clark, Joe Montana, Bill Romanowski, Charles Haley. It's a who's who. It was literally a who's who. So I got to a point in, you know, to where I got a call from the team president, Carmen Policy, who said, you know, you have like 25 of my guys over at your little karate studio. You guys have (laughs) an earthquake, you know, I'm screwed, right? (laughs) Why don't you just come down and train the guys at the 49er facility? And that was 1990. And I officially started traveling with the team, you know, in 1994 when we won the Super Bowl. And I stayed there until 2004, so 14 years. Wow. And, and over that time, refining what I, what I learned with martial arts to a point where I became a training specialist, training guys specifically for positions. I went from defensive line to offensive line to DBs to linebackers, free safeties. Every element of and every aspect of football had a certain skill set that I would be specializing in. For quarterbacks, it was footwork and, and evasion. For running backs, it was high knee stepping and, and, and side-to-side movement. For, for D-line, it was pass rush. For O-line, it was containment. For DBs, it was bump and run. For wide receivers, it was breakoffs. And on and on and on and on. And I was able to work with the greatest coaches in the world, like Bill Walsh, and it taught me something brand new, which was how to function within a team environment and to throw out this idea that you are the master, you are the guru, and work within a team environment and that your contribution is one of many contributions to make a great team. And it was the greatest learning experience of mine to be able to work in a team environment. And you know that's how I transitioned from being a karate instructor to becoming a football coach and eventually in the late 1990s i was coaching you know many many players and one of my players was a guy by the name of joe montana Mm -hmm. and i was getting this idea of getting back into into media which is almost like another story but where it ends is around 1997 before i started my entertainment business is is when you know my, my teaching kind of officially ended was in the late 90s when i really started to transition into media Okay. So I got to ask them, did any of the players that you worked with that you know of, did any of them stick with martial arts maybe after their playing careers and continue with it? You know, I, I think all of them, you know, I, I had dinner with a, with a player a month ago that I trained back in 1998. No, 1990, 1998, I trained him and he came to me because he's 50 years old now and he has a son and he wants his son to train in martial arts. And so I think many of them are doing it, but a, a lot of them have, have also passed it on to their kids and their next generation. I mean, and it's opened their mind to that this is another way to make themselves better. Definitely. Cool. So you kind of mentioned the whole, the media thing. Now, kind of talk about the media thing and how you blended martial arts into that. 
So, you know, end of the 90s, I had my daughter at the time was, you know, seven years old. Uh, if you can imagine you're, you're, you're a parent, this is again, pre YouTube and internet. What you could watch on television was basically PBS and PBS had two shows that my daughter watched, you know, one was Sesame Street and the other one was Barney. And literally I would watch Barney every day and I was like, somebody just take a, take sorry. a baseball bat and end <laughs> yep. it for me right now, please, yep. please. And at the time, Power Rangers had just come out. And I said to my wife, as a joke, you know, if I can combine karate from Power Rangers with Barney might have something interesting. And she said, well, why don't you do it? You know, you know how to produce. You know, you're and she is like, come on, you know, just don't talk about it. Do it. So, you know, I'm literally training Joe Montana one day and his wife. And I said, hey, I have this idea of taking, you know, you know these, these lessons that I, I teach you and the kids. And, you know, I have a background in, in media. And they knew that because I, I produced some television shows and they had seen some of the stuff. Because at the time I was also producing for the 49ers, an in-house coaching show. I said, I have this idea and um, I just kind of don't know how to do it and put it together. Would you like to to kind of help me? And Joe was like, I'm in. Tell me what we need to do to help me. And so we put together a company and we we actually raised some money and we made this amazing TV show that at the time was called Kangarati, starred the late Pat Morita from The Karate Kid. Yes. Made about 30 episodes that aired on PBS, won an Emmy Award, and it transitioned me out of martial arts into becoming a full-time television producer. And, um, you know, got the bug and... That's where I began, you know, no longer teaching martial arts. And that began my official journey into becoming a television producer. And, you know, was a television producer for many years until I transitioned into this amazing adventure that I'm in right now, which is streaming media. And let's talk about that because, you know, Jungle Plus obviously does so much more than martial arts. But I'm one of the, sure, the whole reason sure. I, whole reason I found you was because of the new thing with, you know, Black Belt Theater, which is so cool. So just talk a little bit about how, how Jungle Plus started and then how you came, yeah. how Black Belt Theater started with you guys. You know, this is going to sound like a sad, sad story, but <laughs> there's, there's, believe it or not, there's some inspiration and motivation. In this. So at the time I, I had this company called American Champion Entertainment. I was very young still, you know, and I say young, I mean. By age, you know, I was in my 30s, but I had so little experience in running a business. I had so little experience. I had a lot of great ideas. I knew how to put things into action, but I didn't know how to run a business. Started that company, and that company ended up, uh, we ended up dissolving that company in, in about 2000, 2001. I was still coaching for the 49ers. And I still own the studio. So, you know, I still had a good lifestyle, you know. And so I continued to do that until about 2006 and in 2006 we experienced one of 2005 we experienced one of the worst football seasons with with a coach and we went two and 14 that year and remember i had lasted 14 years in at the 49ers with i survived two owners three head coaches four presidents i mean nobody lasts that long at the, at the karate instructor would never last that long right. Football team, right so 2005 2006 my 49er career was over. I had dabbled in some other ventures. I was promoting boxing, producing television for boxing, but I was, in a sense, I was lost. I was lost because remember, I had already walked away from martial arts. I couldn't go back to teaching because I had sold my studios and that was gone. I, I, it wasn't like I could go and get another football job because it was so specialized what I did, right? 
Right. So specialized what I did. I was burned out of teaching and producing was was, was fun. I, I, I was making good money traveling around, but my heart really wasn't in it. It was not in it, but I was pretty good at it. So I was producing, you know, boxing and that was kind of, you know, how I was, you know, making a living. And around 2006, I'm flying back from New York, back to San Francisco and I'm on an airplane and I'm sitting next to a guy and he said to me, he goes, Hey, what do you do? And I said, I'm a TV producer. And he goes, so, so am I. He goes, you know what I hate about this business? I said, what? And he goes, that I no longer tell people what they can watch. I said, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, the way this, all this shit's going right now, these 14 year old girls that watch this thing called YouTube, you know, they're the ones that are now in charge. They figure out what they want to watch. You know, it's like, you know, why do they need me? You know, this, this YouTube thing, you ever heard of this YouTube thing? And it was just like a light went on in my head. I'm like, oh my God. And this guy was like a was like a senior level media executive, you know? And I thought to myself, man, I don't I don't want to be that guy. I want to wake up one day and, and the world is like, it's like, what is this thing called the YouTube and, and the Facebook? I, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> and I was scared to death because I'm thinking to myself, in five years, am I just gonna be completely irrelevant? And is the world gonna go so fast? And I didn't stay up. And I literally went home that night and I told my wife the story. And I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm totally lost. I, and she goes, maybe what you should do is go get a job. Wow. And not to go make a living. But her, in her mind, it was, if you want to do something so bad, just go learn it. But George, you can't just go start a business if you don't know it. Because you've said to me before, you had a failed entertainment business because you didn't know what you were doing. Go work for somebody. Go figure it out. You're smart. You're still young enough. Go figure it out yourself. And so in, I'll never forget, you know what Craigslist is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went on Craigslist that night and I started looking for jobs. And there was a job that was this thing called New Media, IPTV. And they were looking for someone that knew, that had experience in multicultural television. That's me. I knew how to produce multicultural television because I was produced, I had produced 200 episodes of 49er programming in Spanish and Chinese. I'd been producing boxing, MMA in different languages. That was me. So I took a job after the, remember, after this amazing career that I've had up to this point, owning karate studios and, and doing all these great things. I took a job in Los Angeles, California at the time for $57,600 before taxes. Okay. But I lived in Northern California. And so I had to drive every Monday, four o'clock in the morning, drove to LA and would work at an office in Studio City, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And on Thursday night, I would drive back to the Bay Area. And I did this for a year, every single week. Wow. And because it was tight, you know, I was making $57,600 a year. I still had to support a family. And my wife, my wife had a, my wife works, but you know, I had two kids and a mortgage and all that stuff. I had to watch every penny, you know, and I literally, you know, you know, I'm in my, by then, you know, I, I, I'm in my, gosh, we're talking 15 years ago, you know, I'm in my forties, right? Literally counting pennies going, okay, can't stay at the Ritz Carlton tonight. I'm going to have to stay at the Motel 6 and commerce california because it's 49 dollars a night because i kind of got to get through this right i got to right. get through this and i didn't know where it was going but i was learning every day about this thing called new media and delivery via by this thing called streaming and buffering and all these things that we know today in 2006 was a brand new frontier and people looked at me going you're effing crazy man <laughs> you're producing tv shows and traveling around you're gonna do this 
this thing, this internet TV, what, you're not good enough to do regular TV? You got to do internet TV? And let alone you're not even doing real Hollywood stuff. You're doing Chinese internet TV and Spanish internet TV. And what the hell are you doing? This was just different friends and social circles looking at me like I was nuts. But my wife, my wife knew that this is something. And she always said to me, she goes, you know, you were always a little early. You were always a little early, but now you're not early. You might be onto something. If you really believe in this, you continue to stay on this path. And I stayed on this path. And one day I get this phone call from a headhunter that said, hey, we're looking for somebody to be the executive vice president of a company that does streaming. And there's only a handful of guys that do what they do. And you're one of them. And are you interested in this job? And the area code of the call was from San Diego, California. I'm like, oh my God, I got to drive to San Diego now? And they're going, well, actually, the job is in Redwood City, California. I'm like, nice. oh my God. I live five minutes from Redwood City. I'll take the job. You know, and it was like quadruple the pay. And it was like a real executive job. And suddenly I got into this, this world where I'm working with major platforms with good funding. And I was able to take the knowledge of, of learning how to run teams and machines, doing things on a budget, working in this new media. And every day I went to work, it was like going to college. Man. It was literally like getting a master's degree because the world was changing so quickly. Platforms were changing. And I literally went through several other jobs, which is very typical in Silicon Valley. And I kind of moved my way up to different jobs, higher and higher and higher. And I ended up at a very cool startup called Crunchyroll in uh, 2012. And Crunchyroll was a company that was only five years old. I was a 40th employee. And it ended up becoming one of Silicon Valley's greatest success stories. Ended up selling for $900 million to AT&T. Fortunately, you know, I was part of an executive team. I was a C-level executive, a chief content officer for the for the company, which really gave me a lot of street cred. So when I left that company in 2016, by then, you know, I, I really did know what I was doing by then. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I there was no longer faking it till I was making it. I really put in the time, you know, because I spent almost 10 years in new media and I'd seen every iteration happen, literally. And so I decided by that point, you know, you know, things were going very, very well in my life. And I decided I'm going to start my own company and I'm just going to, you know, you know, run my own company and help content providers get on streaming platforms like Netflix and Amazon. And because I knew I knew the path to get content up there because that's what I did. Right. Right. And I ended up um, at a conference and I got approached by a by an agent. And he goes, hey, you know, you know, congratulations, you know, you know, I heard that you just left Crunchyroll. And, you know, I, you know, I followed what you've done. You know, it's very cool. I have a guy I'd like to introduce you to. I think you guys would be great business partners. And I'm like, I'm not looking for a business partner right now. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm kind of happy just kind of being a you know solo guy. And it's like, no, I think this guy could really help you. And I said, okay, who is he? And the guy ended up becoming Mehmet Oz. You know better as Doctor Oz. Okay. And. Dr. Oz is Turkish. And what a lot of people don't realize is one of the most watched programs in the world besides Hollywood movies are Turkish dramas. Really? Huge, huge, huge. And it's because Turkish people have what are what we call ethnically ambiguous. You can't tell if they're European, Latino, or or so you can dub them in, in Spanish or Portuguese or French or German or Italian. And the dramas are family friendly and have all the elements of telenovelas and soap operas and, and and they're huge. And Dr. Oz was so proud of, you know, his Turkish background. He said, look, I think that, you know, I would love to see Turkish dramas become, you know, mainstream, like the way anime and Korean dramas are. And I know you're an expert in, in international streaming content. I said, great. 
So we became business partners. We took on a couple of very, very high level investors and board members. One of them is actually, I understand you're from Minnesota, yes. right? Yep. So you, my, my chairman is actually from Minnesota, very, very well-known Minnesota entrepreneur, very, one of the most successful guys in your area. His name is Nasser Kazmini. Okay. And, um, yeah. and, and um, with Nasser, he brought in a group of investors that have helped start Jungo, which now include former founders of Allegiant Airlines, you know, one of the biggest real estate developers in the world, one of the biggest developers of, of, of telecommunications in Eastern Europe, and our most recent board member and shareholder is the very famed John Scully, the former CEO of Apple Computer. Okay, wow. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the idea behind Jungle in the beginning was we were going to be like, think of it like international Netflix, you know? Mm -hmm. But as the world started changing so much, we started seeing that the adoption was not toward streaming services that you pay for because there's only a few that you can pay for, Disney and Paramount and Netflix. The, the business was really going toward ad-supported programming. Right. Think of it like YouTube. That's ad-supported. Mm -hmm. You watch a video for free, but you got to watch some ads, right? And that's the business where I was able to take all of my knowledge of what people like to watch, putting on devices that became easy to watch it on. You know, it's the any place, anywhere, any time model for free. And Jungo today, I'm happy to report, I'm I'm available on 1.8 billion devices wow. with 350 million monthly subscribers that watch our content, our channels across platforms all over the world. We've built this amazing company of you know that that operates and now I have employees in. Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Mumbai, India, Manila, Philippines. Uh, you know, we're truly a worldwide organization and a group of extremely passionate, passionate and extremely uh, skilled people that, that all love what they do. Not all of them came, by the way, from streaming media because streaming media is so young, but they're, they all have one quality, which is the way that I hire people which is what I learned in football from Bill Walsh, which is don't go by a resume of what someone does or what they did or what their past successes are. Hire people that have good character and are wickedly smart. Nice. Because if you do that, they will learn what they need to learn, but they will have the ethics and you will always trust them. And that's what I, I'm so proud to say. That's what we have today. You know, nearly 100 employees that every single one of them I respect so much. Every, every one of them is smarter than me um, and, and, and are passionate about what they do and now operate this thing you know, on a global level. And most recently, how we met was I kind of wanted to circle back to martial arts because, you know, it was obviously my passion, what I right. love. And I thought, what better way to do it than to have a martial arts channel? So the first channel that I started three years ago was called Combat Go, but it's really more of a fighting channel, MMA, mm -hmm. and that really is not my DNA. Right. But it was commercially very viable. At the time, Century Martial Arts had bought Black Belt magazine. Black Belt was still kind of a kind of a, a, a legacy media uh, company, you know, with you know newspaper and some some elements of web, a little bit of social media. And and I've known the organ the owners of Century for many, many years. And we came together a couple of years ago and we we said, let's launch Black Belt Magazine Television Network, a network that would focus on martial arts instruction, martial arts entertainment, martial arts philosophy, and targeted toward the martial artists, not necessarily people that want to watch the UFC, because those are there's channels if you want to watch UFC. Go to ESPN. 
Combat Go, you can watch kickboxing and other combat sports. Let's but let's create a channel that's for the martial artists. And we started Black Belt Magazine Television about six, seven months ago. And we decided that we wanted to create some original programming around it. And so one of the programs that we created talk shows called, we have one called The Master's Way, another one called Mono a Mono, hosted by you know former UFC champion uh, legend Nate Quarry, and also co-hosted by former NFL free safety and 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 BJJ enthusiast uh, Tony Parrish, who's also the head of our global uh, content. And then we looked at other creative programs, and there was always a cool program that a lot of us remember affectionately growing up called Kung Fu Theater. Yes. So we decided, let's bring back Kung Fu Theater. And who better to host it than you know, the queen of Kung Fu, Cynthia Rothrock? And, and again, this is where I am in my life. You know, Cynthia and I, at one time, you know, we had a relationship. We were together for several years, and then we weren't for many, many years. And, you know, we didn't talk to each other for many years, but now we're all grown up. Mm-hmm. Guess what? We can all work together. And yes. it's awesome. Nice. And it's awesome. And we, uh, and, and I, and, and I looked at saying, how do we branch out the audience besides just people that are, that are in martial arts and how do we grow the audience? And there's a young man that I met a few years ago that did some voiceover work for me, Stefan Johnson, who you're friends with. Yep. And, and I said, Stefan, I think this would be very cool as a co-host. You bring on a different type of energy and knowledge that that is different. And you bring on a different audience from TikTok and social media. And he goes, George, I'm not a karate guy. I said, I don't want you to be a karate guy. I got a karate person, Cynthia Rothwell. But I want another element to it, a a comedic element, uh, another another way to look at it. It's the same way that we approached the West Coast demo team, you know, many years ago, you know, take things out of the box. And that's what we did. And, And so this newest show is called Black Belt Theater. And, you know, we have movies that, are, that range from Bruce Lee's Chinese Connection to No Re- no Retreat, No Surrender to, you know, Black Belt Samurai to, to new movies that were made in L.A. three months ago. So that's kind of, you know, the journey, how it's kind of come full circle for me of keeping martial arts still into the love affair that I have with media today. I'm able to still honor the martial arts that, that was so good to me. That's awesome. What an awesome story. And I, and I love it. I mean, I, ever since I first heard about it, I've been uh, tuning in and checking it out. And I, I'm glad that we can now download previous stuff because yeah, yeah. <laughs> usually I'm gone on Saturday nights. So yeah, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. But uh, no, I, I'm just, it's uh, so excited for your success and uh, and I love it. It's there's so many of these martial arts programs that people maybe haven't seen in a long time or don't get a sure. chance to see. And and it's just cool. To, and, and the commentary, like you said, the two of them work well together on, on Black Belt Theater. And it's, it's, they, they're great partners on that one. So I, I you picked a good team for that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Cool. So to, to jump uh, around a little bit, let's say someone approaches you and they're thinking of getting involved in martial arts. They've never done it in their life and they're looking for some tips. What are, what is something you would, some tips you'd give them what to look for in a school, what to look for in an instructor? Well, two things. One is, I know this is going to sound crazy because it, it needs to be convenient. You could find the greatest instructor that's 50 miles away, but in the beginning, if it's not convenient, you're not going to go. Right. And it needs to be something that you can do because in the beginning, it's not going to be easy. And you have to you you have to stick with it. There's going to be times you're going to want to quit. So it needs to be convenient enough for you to be able to get there, train, go home, rest. I mean, there, there has to be convenience to it. And then the second thing, you have to have a good feel for the compatibility of your instructor. If you like instructors that are going to push at you and yell at you and scream at you, 
that's the instructor that's going to be best for you. And if you need an instructor that's quiet and polite and, and, and approaches it differently, that's what you need. And if you need someone that's just hyper and motivating, that's what you need. If you like being trained with a man, or if you like being trained by a woman, if you want somebody old, if you want somebody young, you have to go where, where you feel comfortable. Because in the beginning, what will keep you going back is to eliminate excuses. Because it's good. you're going to say, oh, it's too far. The guy's too mean. Person can't relate to me. They're too, they're too old. They can't relate. They're too young. They're not mature. All these things could come up in your thought process. And you want to try to eliminate as many of those as possible. And I know I'm thinking way deep. But mm-hmm. I also know the reason why people quit after so many years. Yep. It's because I've heard every one of these excuses. It's too far. Classes aren't convenient for me. It's too hard. It's too tough. I have different priorities. Can't make class. I don't like the instructor. They're not motivating. They're too motivating. I've heard them all. So I I think that you almost have to approach, and you can approach martial arts the same way that you go buy clothes. Things have to fit you, right? Right. And then you have to also let your instinct take over a little bit and you say, does this feel right for me? Does it feel right for me? And if it does, then it's good for you. And that's why Cobra Kai and Miyagi-Do both exist. And now Eagle Fang. Because everybody has a different approach. Yep. You know, and everybody likes it a little bit different. But my advice is you have to really look at it. The You know, we spend more time thinking about buying a car or what we're going to binge watch sometimes than we make in joining a martial arts school or fitness instructor or instructor True. when that person may end up having much more influence in our life. That's a good, good point. The car that we drive or the show that we're going to watch. So you know, just study and be aware of what you're getting into and, and really shop before you jump in and make a commitment. Nice. Great answer. Great answer. So if you had to pick, I'm, I'm probably have a good guess on the answer, but if you had to pick one martial artist that you just truly admire, who would that be? Well, of course, it's Ernie Reyes yeah. is one because he was my teacher, my mentor, you know, uh, a person that really has, has gone and, and really has become, you know, very true to it. But there, there's a few other martial artists that I really have, have grown to respect and, and admire a few of them. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you who they are. And believe it or not, I've never trained with them. Okay. I've never trained with them. But people like Tyree Cassell and Dennis Brown. Dennis Brown once told me that there's a generation of people today that compete just because they love to compete, but not because they love martial arts. And he says, you know, I am a martial artist and it will be with me throughout my entire life. And I can, I'll never forget. I had the honor of meeting Linda Lee. We did a NFL event and I invited Linda to come because we were honoring Bruce Lee for a martial arts day at the Oakland, it was an Oakland Raiders event. And because of my connections with the NFL, so we did a martial arts tribute to Bruce Lee and special guest was Linda Lee. And we had all these martial arts schools do a halftime show. And I got a chance to, to spend time with Linda Lee. But Linda Lee spent about three hours with my wife and told my wife a story who then told me the story. And what Linda Lee told my wife was this. Bruce Lee was a martial artist who was also an actor. But first and foremost, he was a martial artist. Brandon was an actor who did martial arts, but Bruce was the martial artist. He, Bruce was fascinated, lived and died by martial arts, more important than anything else in the world. And that's what, you know, that's, that's what kept this fascination and motivation. The older I get, the more I appreciate that. 
the fact that if you really love martial arts, no longer about the competition, it's no longer about the trophies, it's no longer about the accolades, it's really just doing something that you love. And people ask me all the time, hey, do you still do martial arts? And although when you look at my dad bod, you you might not believe that I do. But at 6.30 this morning, I was stretching and doing roundhouse kicks. Nice. And I still love it. And I'm still fascinated by it. And I still love to devour and read about it and watch it and all those things. And so for those reasons, I respect people that still are in love with the martial arts and preach the martial arts because they, in their heart and warriors, are martial artists. They are real martial artists. And so couple of people that, that I really admire and respect, you know, like I said, Ernie Reyes, Tyree Cassell, Dennis Brown, you know, just great mar- martial artists that, that, have, that have spent their life at it. And I also have tremendous respect and honor for some of the people that have taught me over the years. I was very, very blessed to have trained with Remy Preces, oh, who nice. is a Filipino yes. uh, Arnie's master. I spent four years of private training with, with Remy in San Francisco, literally every Saturday, drive up there and train with him. I, it was an honor to, to be able to, to do our niece with him, you know, one-on-one with him. Toshiro Oshiro from Redwood City, California, who taught me Kabuto weapons. And then I also had an opportunity to train with and, and have exposure to different martial arts like Kempo. I got to, I got to learn some Kempo with John Sepulveda. I got to experience Wushu with Anthony Chan. And even Cynthia Rothrock taught me a lot about Northern Shaolin Kung Fu. All these people to this day are still very much involved in martial arts. And they still, what keeps them going still are martial arts. They still love martial arts and they train every day and they're inspiring. You know, they're 70, some of them are almost 80 years old, you know, and they still train. And it's not because of a trophy or because of an award or an accolade. It's because that's how they're wired. They just love to train. And they love to continually grow. And that inspires me. That inspires me. So despite the fact that, you know, I, I live in Hollywood, and I'm, I'm literally looking at Hollywood as I speak. I'm literally looking outside <laughs> my window. On one hand, it's, it's really easy to become jaded about things. But I'm still like a five-year-old or 12-year-old. When you hear me talk about how excited I, I still am about martial arts. You can, you can hear it in your voice. That's, a, that's awesome. Thank I you. love that. Yeah. Thank you. Nice. So is there a philo- one philosophy you've learned throughout all your years in martial arts that you keep coming back to that's super important to you? Humility. Nice. Didn't, by the way, didn't learn it in martial arts. Oh, okay. Learned it from Joe Montana. Oh. Who to me is a martial artist. Joe Montana for as great as he is, he because he was the original GOAT before Tom Brady was the original GOAT, was one of the kindest, most respectful, humble man you will ever meet in your life. And I thought about it for many, many years that I thought, if Joe Montana with all the greatness can be so humble, we all have a lesson to learn from him. It's not about how good we are or how hard we work at something or our accomplishments. It, it really is how we treat other people. And so it's something that to this day, I think it's so important to be kind to people and to, and to be respectful to people, regardless of where they are in their life. Because what a lot of people don't realize is your, your words and your actions can definitely affect people negatively and positively. And we don't always say things, you know, at the time or treat people the way that we should. And, you know, and 
we can't take things back. So what we can do as we as we grow and, and, and become older is to learn those lessons. And as we advance in our years, to take those things. And for me, it's learning um, that being humble and staying hungry is so important because by being humble and hungry, you will never think that you are the greatest or that you are untouchable or unbeatable. And you will always strive to be better because there is always somebody that's going to be better than you. There's always going to be somebody stronger and faster. And so the best thing to do is to stay humble and to stay focused. And that will keep you on your path. Nice. Very, great answer. All right. I've got a few fun ones to wrap it up here. Do you have a favorite martial arts book? It was uh, Modern Arnis and Dynamic Kicks. Oh, okay. Cool. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a technique book. And then, of course, martial arts philosophy books. It's the, uh, it's the, I'm sorry, it is uh, the Joe Himes book. Oh, my God. Zen in the Martial Arts. Zen in the Martial (laughs) Arts. Been a while. My my guest yesterday said the same book. That's the only reason it was right on the top of my head there. So it was a great book. (laughs) Nice. Okay. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Um. I'm embarrassed to say I'm not up to date on all of them. I started watching a little bit of, of Bruce Lee, uh, the, the Warrior okay. series, the, the, okay. the one. And then I'm also watching right now Wu Assassins, which I'm, I'm kind of digging. Great Wu Assassins, show. That's right? a fun show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it could be an old one. It can be an old classic yeah. one, too. It doesn't have to be a modern one. You know, to be honest with you, I'm really, I really love Karate Kid. I really did. I'm, I'm liking the Cobra Kai series right oh, now. Yes. I'm really, di- I'm really digging it. And part of it is also... My office is in North Hollywood on Lancashire Avenue. Okay. And the other, and in the last episode, it was like, meet us at Lancashire and Magnolia. And I'm like, um, I think there's like a, a, a Vietnamese fall shop there. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, cool. All right. And favorite martial arts movie? That's going to be the obvious is, of course, it's going to be Enter the Dragon. Right. And I, I would say, without, with, you know, you know not, not necessarily in that order would be, uh, Enter the Dragon, Return of the Dragon, possibly in, in the more modern, you know, going to the, because every era I thought it's, it's almost impossible to judge them because they're also differently. Right. You know, a, 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 a Jackie Chan, uh, you know, Meals on Wheels, you know, just because, you know, he was pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> as you can see, I'm, I'm not super deep philosophically. I just like, to, I <laughs> like my eyes to be entertained. Yep. Right? <laughs> I'm the same. <laughs> and anything, and anything with Jim Kelly. Ah, very cool. Nice. Okay. Now this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, but do you have a favorite martial arts fight scene? Great question. That's a new one. I just added a couple, you know, maybe five, six episodes ago. I started asking that one. Well, yeah, there's, there's a couple. One is laugh. Uh, Jim Kelly entered the dragon, two cops pull him over. He uses the ridge hand technique to beat up cops. Who does that? Who uses the ridge hand technique? Okay. <laughs> Who uses the ridge hand? Jim Kelly okay. does. <laughs> Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly does. Okay. Of course, probably the scene that took everyone's breath away is the Bruce Lee fight scene against Bob Wall, where Bob Wall grabs his leg yep. and he does the flip backwards and kicks him. I mean. It, it, it changed the game for everybody. It was like, whoa, wait a minute. What just happened? Yep. What just happened, right? And, and of course, I would say the most iconic would be Bruce Lee in, in the karate studio taking on 27 karate instructors <laughs> using the ninjaku. Again, it, it was one of those things that you're like, wait, wait, what? What is he doing? Because it, 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 you, you almost think there's like, it almost created this like 
pop culture shift that suddenly, what are those two sticks? And now everyone in America is going to have two sticks. Of course. <laughs> and they're not going to pronounce it right. They're going to call them nunchucks, yep. but uh, it will forever be part of pop culture. That's awesome. Some great answers there. Nice. George, I just want to, I want to thank you so much. This has been so much fun. What a story, man. What, what a life. I, I, I love what you've done and, and how you've managed to keep martial arts involved in, in so many aspects of your life throughout your career and stuff. And, and I, and I definitely love what you're doing at jungle plus and especially black belt theater. And I'm going to put links out there for everything and, and encourage many times for my, my listeners to go and watch that for sure. Truly appreciate it, Brian. Keep doing what you're doing. This is great stuff. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.